Welcome to another episode of the Farcast, bringing you experts and insiders on Washington, Wall Street, and the world. And now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks so much for joining us again this week. It is the 16th day of February. Happy Valentine's Day, a couple of days late. Uh, I hope that you had a happy Valentine and that your roses were delivered on time. I didn't mean to do it, but I saved a couple of friends. Uh, I was heading to a lunch and I was two minutes late for the lunch because I stopped at Walgreens uh, to get a Valentine's Day card. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm late. I had to get a Valentine's Day card. Three other guys at the table slammed their palms into their forehead and said, oh, damn, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, so at least at that lunch, I saved at least three marriages uh, two days ago, folks. I'm telling you, I was to, it was actually lunch on the 13th. So I really, I, I, I did uh, the Lord's work there. Markets have been crazy and we are recording this forecast after the markets closed on Thursday, the 16th, and it was an interesting close. Uh, we were okay kind of all day long, and then boom, we dove, dive, dive, dive. Uh, the bells were ringing, the klaxons were sounding, and the Dow closed down 431 points. S&P 57 points, or 1.38%, and the NASDAQ down 1.78%. Risk trade-off, risk trade-off is what that means. The 10-year Treasury really fell. The yield jumped to a 386 on the 10-year. 386 yep. on the 10-year. Six-month is a 501. We were actually 503, 504 on the six-month, but we're north of a 5% handle there. And um, But 386 on 10s, that was a big deal today. Um, and it was uh, it was up like five basis points or something. We started the day in the, I believe, well, during the day, we got down below 340. So we had over a 40 basis point swing on the 10-year treasury. As we try to figure out what's going on with markets and whether they're going to settle down at any point in here or whether we should really believe this 10, 11, 12% run in the NASDAQ and that we've all missed out and need to buy it as fast as we can with both hands, we turn to our great friend, Kenny Polcari, CEO, chairman of the board at Case Capital <laughs> Advisors. Kenny, welcome back to the Farcast. Michael, it is always a pleasure to be with you, and you know that. Thank you always, for having me. Always a pleasure to have you here, and we always learn so much, Kenny. We always learn so much. So uh, what do you make of today's markets, where we are? We've had this terrific bullish start for equities of the year, and everything that did well in 2022 looks like crap in 2023. How do you make sense of that? That's right. And everything that everything that acted lousy in 22 looks great in 23, or at least it did up until today, right? You, Look, should, have given you, you should have given all your money to Kathy Woods uh, on December 31st, <laughs> and, and you'd be rich now, right? Right. But I think, look, you and I have had this conversation. I was quite surprised at the, and I have been surprised at the pace at which the market uh, has, has acted uh, and gone higher this year, just because I think it's well ahead of itself. I think it was pricing in, oh, the Fed's going to pause, and then they're going to pivot. Everything's going to be great. They're going to start stimulating, and rates going back to zero, and everybody should be happy and pile in. And I just never saw that. You and I never no. saw it. We've been talking about it. And I think today's PPI report, on top of Tuesday's CPI report, both showing increasing inflation again. And look, here's another thing you and I have been talking about for a couple of months. What have we been afraid of? You know, they've been saying inflation is going down, down, down. And I said, 
I'm afraid it's going to turn its ugly head up and start to go higher. And guess what it's doing? It's turning its ugly head up and it is going higher. And then you get comments from both Bullard and Mester today, Fed Presidents Bullard and Loretta Mester, calling for a 50 basis uh, point hike in March. Right. They said they've been they advocated for it in January. They didn't get it. They're advocating it for again now in March after the strong report. And that sent stocks into, you know, a tailspin late this afternoon. We're hearing speculation of a six percent terminal rate. We were just at 480 I mean, two weeks ago. Listen, I don't think it's speculation. I don't think it's speculation because it's been laid out there. And actually, I think it was I think it was Loretta Mester who said it a couple of weeks ago that she started floating. Remember, we were at we were at five, five and a quarter, then five and a quarter, five and a half with uh, with Neil Kashkari. And then Loretta Mester, I believe, was the one who floated the six percent idea. She put it out there. So it was in the public square. Nobody paid attention to her. They kind of poo pooed the idea. They went on. No way. The Fed's going to pivot and pause and everything's going to be great and pile in. And guess what? I think Loretta Mester's right. I think it, and you and I have been saying that. I think that we're going 575 to 6 is where they're ultimately going to find the terminal rate. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester is one of the coolest people I know in our business. I've gotten to know her pretty well over the years. She and I have given a couple of speeches together. Uh, yep. I can't tell you truly how humbling it is to, to even say that out loud, that I've given these speeches year after year with these different Fed presidents both in the United States and abroad and overseas. I've been able to go and travel and speak with the Fed presidents. Not sure how I got on that circuit, but boy, it's a lot of fun. And I'm it's so proud of you. I'm so proud Thank of you, Michael. You. I think that's great. Thank you. Thank you. I, and you know, <laughs> uh, well, it gives you great insight too, Kenny. It does. Not so much from what I say, but when I get to meet them and I get to hear, you know, off camera, off stage, what they're going to say. I mean, last month I was standing there with Pat, Pat Harker and I said, what are you going to do on this debt ceiling? And he yeah. slams his hand, his palm of his hand into his forehead. And he goes, don't go. Don't even say it. Right. Don't right. talk to me about it. We don't know what the hell to do if they do the stupid debt ceiling. We don't know. And I said, well, what are you going to do with rates? He says, we're going to take them up another three quarters of a, of a point, And we're going to keep them there a long damn time. Yeah. Uh, and so all these people do. see. And that's funny. A long damn time. That doesn't mean two months or three months. No. Like, like the market had been pricing in a pivot, which means a rate cut in either the late summer or early fall of 2023. That's six months away. Guess what? Not happening. I don't Not know how you can't do it with the data that we're seeing. You, Look at the data that we're seeing. It's, it's impossible. Data and you can't do it. But Loretta Mester is giving you a good message. So, Kenny, uh, let's come back, extrapolate to that six month bill. The right. six-month Treasury bill is over 5% now, and right. rates are still at four and three-quarter. What right. happens when rates go to six? Where's the six-month bill? Well, there you go. The six-month bill could probably be pushing 7.5%, right? It's over it was, six, right? It's, it's over six. Easily over six. Easily over six. But look, right now, rates are at four and three-quarters, and the number's over five, right? So if so, it goes okay, to so six, but okay, at so least maybe, a quarter on your six right. and So a maybe it's six and a quarter, 640, right? On a six-month right? bill. Right. How? So, where does so that think, make mortgage rates? Where do mortgage rates go? I there? think mortgage rates still go back to have an inverted seven. yield curve. Still an inverted uh, yield curve when rates get well, that high. Well, we're inverted already for what? We're almost inverted twelve months already. Do you realize that April will be twelve I, months that we're inverted? I, I do realize that, but we know that Kenny, the mortgage rates are set off the ten-year Treasury. They're basically going to go off the ten-year Treasury, right? And the ten-year Treasury is still hovering. I mean, it's 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 up today, right? 
but the 10-year treasury 386. So we're going to see mortgage rates up this weekend. They're going to bump them up. They're going to bump them up fast this weekend because they're not yep. going to have to, they're going to have to right. place them on Monday. So uh, where, where, where does that 10-year go? How long does this yield curve stay inverted? The longest one I think we've seen is 21 months. I just pulled that out of the air. I think it's right. I think it's right. Harry, check that for me. We the longest yield curve inversion. I want to say 21 months. This we're at 12 months now. I suppose we could get there, huh? Well, listen, remember what they said when the yield curve inverts, when it first inverts and it inverted in April, they said it's typically 12 to 16 months before they officially recognize a recession. If that's the case, then they should be officially recognizing it anytime now between April and June. That'll be 12 to 16 months from when it first started, right? Yeah, but how do you have a recession with 3.4% unemployment? Well, you don't, but I think you're going to see that really start to change. I think it's going to start to change in the in next month's NFP number because all these layoffs that we've been hearing about in December and now in January have hit. Those people are going to go through their severance. They're going to, they're going to now start applying for unemployment benefits, and then you're going to see the unemployment rate go up. And Did you're going you to see, see the initial claims estimate? go up. Did you see the CBO estimate for uh, no. for unemployment saying it's going to go above 5% by the end yeah. of this year? By the end of this year. Think by about that. By the end of this year. That's right. what the and, CBO that's what the CBO said. And so, and listen, and there are many out there that say it has to go above 5% in order for the Fed to succeed. Larry Summers, remember, he said it had to go above 6% and then stay there for 2 years is what he said. I think that's a little dramatic, but it definitely cannot stay at 3.4% and nor is it going to stay there. So we've got two things here, Kenny. We've got if you've got this five and a half million person gap or, or jobs gap, jobs wanted versus people who are looking for jobs, right? Yep. Uh, the unemployed, uh, all of the people unemployed. We found how many job wanted there. There are additional five, five and a half million jobs wanted. You don't see wages come down. You don't see wages come down. So we've got corporate America, S&P 500 companies who are having to pay more for employees. There's no sign anytime soon that that's going to change or reverse in terms of what they're going to have to pay for employees. Number one. Number two, we know that they're paying more for the debt. If they're right. going to borrow money, it's going to cost more. And if they've got to refinance debt, which, Correct. by the way, a lot of those companies doubled. They doubled when interest rates were down at 2%. And right. they said, we're going to borrow twice as much money at the cost. Well, if they got to refinance it, they're either going to refinance less of it or it's going to cost them a lot more. Either way, that's going to come out of their earnings margin. So okay. when you see in a bear market that earnings typically decline, contract by about 20 percent, that's how it happens. But how long will that take, Kenny? Well, listen, I suppose it, it depends on how fast that macro data responds now to the rate hikes. And if we go 50 basis points in March, it's going to start to respond, I think, much more quickly. The market's going to have to see that and, and reallocate the risk, right, which means trade lower in order to offset uh, what the environment's going to look like. So I think what it's do you going think to about the argument that it takes 12 months to see the effect of a rate hike and the Fed should absolutely pause here. They've done enough and they ought to wait a few more months. I mean, we still haven't gotten to the anniversary of the first rate hike and it was only a quarter of a stupid point. Uh, no, I hear you, but we're getting there, right? We got two, we got, we got till April. So we got two more months. We got the rest of February and then all of March and then kind of mid April before we get to that, to that anniversary. But look, I think that the Fed, while they while they it does take time for it to filter through, it's clear that wages aren't backing off. 
at all. And that's a problem for the Fed. And look, we talked about that before, too, because it's very reminiscent of the wage price spiral inflation that we had in the late 70s, early 80s. Right. And the only way they kill that is by Paul Volcker, by jamming rates so high that he sent the U.S. economy into a two year recession. Remember how ugly that less, was? Are you more or less worried than you were on December 31st? I am getting more cautious, right? I always thought the first six months were going to be volatile. After what, after the reports I just saw this week in CPI, PPI, with it turning its ugly head up again, I'm becoming much more cautious. So, in fact, I do think we're going to test not only the 4,000, the 4,000 S&P trend line, but I think there's a possibility we break that now and test the October lows. I think it was 3850-ish. Hey, where you I got your boy, you got your buddy boy, Mikey Wilson, still calling for 3,000 on the yeah. S&P. Absolutely. I think that's a little bit I think that's a little bit dramatic, although I will say if if CPI and PPI and PCE continue to inch upwards and Bullet and, and Mester, you know, if their narrative of raising 50 basis points and a six percent terminal rate, we could definitely see the market test lower. Three thousand, I don't think. I just don't think it's gonna go there. But I wouldn't be surprised to see us test even lower. You know, I, talked to a, I, I talked to a reporter from Reuters yesterday who also freelances for a bunch of the other things, including the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and I'm sure this is a guy you've talked to. But he was saying, he said, are, are you still able to buy stocks in here? Would you buy the market? And I said, that's two separate questions. Right. Are you still able to buy stocks in here? Yes, though I don't feel any urgency and it better be on a fire sale if I'm going to put money to work right now. Right. Uh, I said, but no, he said, well, why is it two questions? I said, because you asked if I'd buy the market. Hell no, I'm not going to buy the market here. He said, why right. aren't you going to buy the market here? You'll buy a stock, but you won't buy the market. See, this is the kind of question a reporter will ask that you think, what right. is stupid? Right. Uh, of course, I'll buy a stock on the fundamentals. The market's up 11 percent in right. 30 days. Why right. would I pay that price? They, of course, right. I'm not going to pay that price. Right. I mean, they, no. Based on the narrative that the Fed was going to pivot and everything was going to be great. That's absolutely out of control. When has the Fed ever said that? The Fed hasn't indicated that, they're going to do anything like that. Listen, not only have they not said it, every single member of the Fed has marched that same line talking about higher for longer. We're holding them up higher for longer. That doesn't mean two months or three months. And 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 who was it, Bullitt or whoever said it last week? that they're going to hold it for a few years. I actually think it was, maybe it was Johnny Williams, New York's Johnny Williams. A few years. And few is actually even more than a couple, right? Because a couple's two. A few is more than a couple. Oh, God, now he's a grammarian, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> huh? Gary, the grammarian. Huh? All right. So, Kenny, uh, yes. uh, so listen, let me, let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, when you go to uh, with, a, with a kind of an odd problem to a young physician, the young physician, smart as that young physician may be, is going to order a lot of tests. Right. You go to a physician who's as old as Kenny and I are, and they <laughs> may have seen it before, and they're going to go, no, 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 I don't need all those tests. Let me tell you what it is. Exactly. Right. They've seen it. Right. Okari and I are telling you we have seen it. We have seen it for over 35 years. Sometimes, I know we sound like curmudgeons. Listen to the old guys. Just listen to the old guys. I promise. <laughs> uh, we haven't lasted this long by being morons. Uh, we just haven't. Listen, yeah. by the way, first of all, 60 is the new 40. So, uh, you know, I think I'm middle aged. <laughs> yes. OK. Uh, you, I, I, have you just covered all the mirrors in your house? OK, look, that isn't what I wanted to ask you. My final question. Advice to Fred and Ethel and we got to go. 
Listen, I, it's the same advice I always have. I'm like you. Make sure you have the right plan. Don't panic. Don't chase. Absolutely don't chase. Let them come to you. But now after a day like this, after the news like this, I always step back and give it a couple of days and let it kind of sort itself out to see where it goes. I wouldn't be surprised to see a further weakness because I think tonight they closed them right on the lows of the day. Yes, and if yes. they did, that typically sets it up for another test lower the next day. So I tell Fred Netto, listen, take your portfolio, the one you have. If it's if it's a well-diversified portfolio, just sit with it. Don't panic. You got money to put to work. Talk to your advisor. And there'll be a time when you can take advantage of putting it to work. But the last thing you need to do now is uh, is is panic about where this is going. One-year Treasury bill paying 5%. How many right. of you think you're going to get a 5% guarantee from the stock market this year? Right. Isn't that an right. interesting question if you're sitting on cash, folks? Right. And if, Ladies and, and the gentlemen. One year's, the one year's paying 5 The six-month is paying just over 5 isn't it? That's correct. That's correct. Kenny's right. always correct. It's paying just over 5 But they're both close enough for government work. And even, even some of these bigger institutional money markets are paying like, Four six four seven. You yep. can get four four in a regular money market at either a Schwab or Fidelity or one of those. Make sure that you know what you own and why you own it. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenny Polcari is our great friend. Kenny, thank you very much for being with us. We're going to be right back with Matt Leffingwell, partner from the Tiber Creek Group, to figure out what's going on in Washington because he's really smart and Mahaffey's out this week. Please stay with us. We're glad you could join us this week on the Farcast. Now back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. Terrific first segment there with Kenny Pokari. Always good, uh, and I love getting Kenny uh, charged up. Uh, Kenny, Kenny gets. Uh, it doesn't take a lot to get Kenny charged up, uh, but it's always still fun. Joining me now, a Farcast fan favorite, going back to season one, and we're now in season six. You believe that, Matt? We're oh, I can't. That's why. That's why. Six. I know. <laughs> Uh, he was there in the very, very beginning. Matthew Leffingwell is a partner at Tiber at the Tiber Creek Group. He was on Capitol Hill for a long time, has worked really extensively in international politics and also uh, in um, uh, philanthropy, extensively in philanthropy with Bono and others, a really accomplished guy. And when you want to know what's going on in D.C., I go to Matt Leffingwell. Welcome back, Matt. Hey, good to be here, Michael. We're glad you're here. And doesn't he have a great voice? Say something, Matt. Go ahead. L listen to the voice for, 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 for radio here. Good to be here, Michael. There you go. See, <laughs> it's just good. I, if, I had that, if I had that voice, think how successful I could be. Matt, uh, I, we're, watching the, uh, we're watching the president deal with balloons today live on TV. Uh, what is the president trying to accomplish as he sort of answers uh, questions with, we're not really sure, but we're going to be really tough on it. Anyway, that's what I took from that press conference. Yeah, well, I think the president's finding himself in this awkward spot of having to, you know, speak publicly in something that has been disclosed and and also, you know, protect class of, like classified secrets. I think there's two sides to these, you know, the, these revelations of balloons floating over the United States taking surveillance. It's something we clearly do to other other nations, friends and foes alike, um, but there, you know, there is the the factor of pop uh, populism now and electoral politics that play into uh, what is really a clandestine operation uh, by the by both the Chinese and and again how we treat it as a U as a government. 
Um, there is, I think there is credibility to the U.S. government tracking these balloons and getting as much information from them as possible once they're once they're detected. But, you know, I think he has to play the role of explaining when it when these these are really, you know, events that wouldn't really necessarily be disclosed to the American public. Typically. Right. So, OK, so uh, I've been told by folks high up in our military that we have satellites and the Chinese have satellites over all of those areas anyway that can see the dimples on a golf ball sitting on a golf course. Uh, why is this more of a threat than that? I'm, I don't know that it is more than a threat than that. I think it's just it's it, the the issue here is that it was so blatant and detected. I think, you know, one question that is coming into play, though, is what are the politics of space? I mean, like that is a that is actually arising on Capitol Hill as being a big question, because up to 60,000 feet are regulated by, you know, by the nation states. And then above sixty thousand feet, it's it's a it's a free for all, right? So it's it's, like, it's it's that area that's called near space, right? Right. Yeah. Altitude called near space, and it's not regulated. And we now can operate in that space, whereas twenty years ago we couldn't, right? Yeah, I mean, and then we have to. I think we also have to applaud the eyesight of Montanans who are able to spot this balloon at sixty thousand feet. So. Yeah, honest to God, those people out there must eat their carrots. Great guys, yeah. Tell me, there you see, they eat their carrots out there in Montana. Uh, all right, so this sounds like it was basically a political response to more of a political, and there's not a real threat here. Uh, as we go to Capitol Hill now, Matt Levingwell is a very accomplished lobbyist, folks, and. You hear about lobbyists all the time in Washington, and indeed on the forecast, we've discussed what lobbyists do. But in general, when a large corporation uh, or wealthy individual, the tough thing about lobbyists is you have to be able to afford them, and that's hard to do. These are expensive folks, expensive folks. But you have an issue that the Congress is going to deal with, the Senate's going to deal with, that's a hot button in Washington, and you've got to make sure your company can still operate. You need to get in to talk to these congressmen and senators, and you just can't swoop in and talk to them and then walk out and leave. You need somebody on their doorstep all the time, and that's when you hire a lobbyist. A lot of larger companies have their own lobbying offices in Washington, D.C., and I've got great friends of mine who are, uh, what do they call them, head of government affairs. That's what they call them. Uh, Chief Government Affairs, Head of Government Affairs. They've got an office in Washington. Most major public companies have those offices staffed with several folks. When they get a hot issue, they will reach out to other firms and employ them as well. Or smaller firms will reach out to guys who have certain areas of of expertise. Uh, Matt, um, who are the busiest lobbyists in Washington right now? Right now, you know, by sector, it's really the uh, like the tech industry is facing a lot of scrutiny by the House Judiciary Committee and and the new chairman, Jim Jordan. Um, There are going to be a lot of uh, antitrust questions. Antitrust for big tech. And and, and which big tech? I mean, who who are they? They're going after all of them. Well, right now, I mean, uh, Chairman Jordan just subpoenaed the CEOs of the largest tech companies, including uh, Meta, which is which clearly gets a lot of attention. Um, you know, Snapchat, a lot of your social media uh, firms are going to be under scrutiny and be because they think these companies up. are monopolies. Somehow, are they monopolies? Right. Yes, they think there's a lot of you know, monopolistic behavior by these companies. So they're, you're going to see them like in the news 
um, quite a bit. And then second, you know, the, with the creation of the Select Committee on China, which is a truly a bipartisan effort, uh, there's this is not just the Republicans, uh, you know, a, a Republican creation. The Select Committee in China is going to be looking at any company that has business operations in China, which which covers all sectors from, you know, manufacturing to uh, energy to uh, tech. I mean, it's it is there's there are a lot of we all know this. I mean, there was a surge in, you know, with the China free trade deal. I mean, like back in the 90s. I mean, this was something that a lot of U.S. Right. companies, uh, including my family's business at one time, had the operations in China. So like. They're going to be a lot, they're going to be coming through what the extent is, what the nature is, like who are they selling this these these technologies to. Um, so you're going to see see every industry really you know go under the microscope. There, there was this great laissez faire idea that more business was good for business, um, and we were pursuing that uh, with because we also felt at that time that other countries' businesses would agree to play by certain rules that China has absolutely ignored and doesn't care about. But Mark, Matt, when we when we think about what's acceptable in the hot button issues in Washington DC now, we we have difficulty talking about the debt limit. We have difficult and both sides argue. And we have difficulty talking about immigration and both sides argue. One thing everybody agrees on is we all hate China now. I mean, everybody, it's great. Uh, you know, here is the pinata du jour in Washington. And you gain politically if you can whack the piñata harder than the other guy. So um, this kind of strikes me as a bit dangerous for the another world superpower, certainly militarily, that has over a billion people in its population, but also the world's second largest economy. What do you see the downside risk and what are the upsides? And can we take this too far? Yeah, I think I think it's easy for Congress to take this too far. I think it's already, you know, the road is already being paved. I mean, you see the delicate dance that that the administration is having to do with with the pragmatic uh, diplomatic relations they have to maintain with China. I mean, to your point, I mean, you, we're dealing with with a military that is going to overtake the size and scope of our own military as we face, you know, budget strains. Um, and Republicans even calling for our, for cuts to our military budget. So there has to be some sort of diplomacy between our two between China and the United States. And you see the Biden administration having to navigate uh, a very wound up Congress, Democrats and Republicans who are just who it just who can score these cheap political points. Um, some legitimate, but a lot of them not uh, on on our on the U.S. relationship with China. And then you factor in Taiwan. You have uh, the second speaker who's going to be traveling to Taiwan. Uh, Is he? Is uh, he? Yeah, he's, yeah uh, McCarthy will be traveling to Taiwan. So you know, wait, 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 wait. That now that has been talked about. That's been rumored about. That's that's definitely going to happen. He's yes. going to go. Yes. Okay. All right, Farcast listeners, there's another first Making for you. News. <laughs> McCarthy's, McCarthy's going. What does that do to the relationship? We've already seen Secretary, I mean, Anthony Blinken say, uh, I'm not going to meet with you people now, though we hear that he might have a little bit of a meeting coming up here soon, but but canceled his big meeting uh, with the Chinese. And we've also heard that maybe that was engineered by Chinese right-wingers who launched the balloons without Xi Jinping knowing about them. Have, have you heard about that too? No, I have not. That's yeah, enough. That, that the right Man, wing of China really wanted, uh, doesn't want uh, uh, guardrails and a safe space regarding Taiwan and basically 
by perhaps launching that weather balloon without Xi Jinping knowing about it, all of a sudden was able to scratch the trip um, and looks like they may have gotten away with it. Anyway, that was from my friend Greg Valliere. I'd suggest that's what he'd heard around Washington. So uh, as, as we as we look at what's going on with China, if you were Secretary of State, what would you be doing right now? Uh, how concerned would you be about tensions and what would be keeping you up at night? And now we've got to go. Yeah, I think what would be keeping me up at night is is a potential war uh, in defense of Taiwan. And I think like the two these two high profile visits by two speakers in a row like really entrenches the U.S. in the time in Taiwan's camp. Uh, we're we're spending a lot of money in on one front in Ukraine, and you know the Chinese could easily see us as being vulnerable and overextended, and you know getting getting our defense cut defense cuts in our budget. Uh, they could easily see a vulnerability on on another front and take advantage of that. We've got Josh Hemensky coming up uh, in our third segment. But um, uh, what do you think uh, Xi Jinping is really trying to accomplish here? Is he going to go into Taiwan? I, yes, I believe so. Really? Over what period? Hasn't he been hasn't he been cowed a bit by what we've done uh, internationally with Ukraine and the coalition of NATO and everybody else? I just don't think so. I think he's. I really? think. I think him like being ag aggressively moving into the these other islands in the in the South China Sea. I think he's. I think he's just the their military is just. Give me a time frame. Give me a time frame, Matt. How I would say. I would say the next three years. Next three years. Fasten your seatbelts, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, our trade with Taiwan, our trade with China, global trade. If there's a coalition and the president, this president has said that we will defend Taiwan. Matt yep. Levingwell is a partner at the Tiber Creek Group, a fabulous uh, lobbying firm in Washington, D.C. Matt, thanks so much for being with us again on the Farcast. It was great to be with you. Next, Josh Huminski from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, one of the smartest guys in Washington we ever get to talk to. We're going to focus on China, Taiwan, and other issues. Ukraine, we've got to get into that. Is, is, has Vladimir Putin shot himself in the foot? Is it, is it, or has he shot himself in a more vital spot, perhaps? When we come back on the Farcast, please stay with us. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr. We appreciate you listening into the podcast this week. And now to introduce this week's special guest, here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back. I'm Michael Farr. Thanks so much for being with us again this week. It is the 16th 
16th day of February. Can you believe it? Halfway through the second month, and here we go. Interesting with uh, Matt Leffingwell. Uh, always learn a little bit more insider of Washington. Who's in there really paying to get things done? You learn a lot when you talk to lobbyists. You really do. And they've got great budgets. They entertain all over the place. So if you're going to come to Washington, make friends with a lobbyist. I'm telling you that you'll get some really good tickets. They invite you to some cool stuff. All right. Also, you want to talk about cool? My friend Josh Minsky is cool. Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Josh is the director of the Mike Rogers Center for Intelligence and Global Affairs. I remember talking with Dr. David Abshire when he uh, arranged to have that set up and with Mike Rogers, and he was so excited. And to have you fill it, I know, makes David so proud, uh, rest his soul. But I, I mean, he really put his heart and soul in the Center for the Study of the Presidency. But the Mike Rogers Center was was very important to him. Uh, Josh, originally from Connecticut, received his master's degree with merit in war studies, in war studies from King's College London, uh, and he completed a dissertation on energy security and international relations. What do you think about finding an expert to come and talk to us on the forecast with that background? Did his undergraduate at the University of Connecticut uh, in political science, where I did uh, some graduate work in psychology then. Uh, he also did a, a thesis on U.S. civil military relations. Josh, welcome back to the forecast. Thanks so much for having me back. We're really glad you're with us. We have so much to learn from you, and we learn every time you're on. So it's really terrific. So, Josh, let's uh, let's go ahead and start with Russia, Ukraine, if we can. Would you give us the state of affairs there, the state of that war? Uh, uh, how much has this hurt or helped Vladimir Putin? Well, I think the state of the war right now is we're in an interesting phase with both sides anticipating offenses, both from Ukraine and from Russia. The Russians are digging along, digging in along the front, and Ukraine is working to rearm and re-equip ahead of the anticipated spring offensives. Now, what those offensives are going to entail really remains to be seen. Uh, I think a lot of the early day victories that Ukraine has had, and great credit to them, those easy victories are likely over. The Russians are digging in, the Russians are learning, and the Russians are in the process of redeploying and deploying the partially mobilized forces that they had uh, turned out at the end of last year. So now we're- are the, Russians, are the Russians running out of soldiers? I mean, it's we we're seeing these reports where they're grabbing 50-year-old men off the street. I mean, anybody they can showing up at your apartment and you're drafted and you're going right then and there. I mean, they don't have, we're seeing they don't have the troops and they don't have trained troops and we're hearing that they're also hiring mercenaries, but can they continue to staff this war? I think so. Uh, I think what you've seen, the, the Wagner group, which you mentioned, the mercenary group, is was recruiting from uh, the prisons and the penal colonies. I believe Yevgeny Prigozhin has said that they're not going to do that anymore. That remains to be seen, obviously. Those are very much cannon fodder. They are sent forward. They're meant to find where the Ukrainians are, basically be killed, unfortunately for them, and then reveal the positions for the Russian main forces. Uh, the Russians did not, as I mentioned, deploy the 300,000, the full bulk of the 300,000 troops that they mobilized at the end of last year. Um, and so in, a, in the face of sustained casualties, they are losing a lot of people, to be clear, and they are running out of a lot of equipment. How many, how many uh, lives, have, Russian lives have been lost in this? I think it's between 180 to 200,000 troops either killed or wounded for the Russians. 180 to 200,000 troops. Wow. And what do you think they've accomplished? 
Well, right now they've they've shifted the front forward. Uh, politically, they've annexed the four provinces and illegal uh, illegal annexation and illegal vote, which now says that it is Russian territory. Um, they have not achieved their out the goals from the outset, which were very ambitious. To be clear, I mean they expected Ukraine to collapse. That Zelensky's government was nothing more than a house of cards. They would seize Kiev almost immediately. That has failed miserably uh, and very clearly. The Ukrainian resolve was a lot stronger than people expected, and the Russian military performance was a lot worse than expected. Reports that we've recently seen from Ukraine from reporters new on the ground there suggest that the resolve of the Ukrainian people is still awfully fervent. Um, so, Absolutely. Uh, will, how long can they keep this up, and how long will this war last? And is there a chance of some sort of resolution before mid-year? Oh, there, there's a lot in there. I think the one, if you want to talk about a great takeaway that was unanticipated from Vladimir Putin's perspective, is he has really catalyzed a true Ukrainian identity in the post-Soviet world. The Ukrainian resolve is incredible. Uh, it's continued to be demonstrated on the front, even in the face of sustained cruise missile and missile attacks that are targeting the infrastructure and designed to be punitive, uh, to make Ukrainian lives as miserable as possible. They are sustaining the fight. Uh, part of that is based because the they know that the West is supporting them in terms of arms and material. And it is very much the West. And I think it's important to caveat that it is a United States and a NATO fight right now. The global South is not involved in this and has said that they will not get involved in this, but putting that to the side. So Putin has basically achieved almost all the aims that he didn't want to achieve. He has a newly emboldened NATO, potentially with Sweden and Finland joining. Um, he has European countries that didn't want to spend on defense committing to two and three percent defense spending. Uh, you have the United States that has doubled down and more involved in Europe. So if you go through the list of all of the bet noirs for Vladimir Putin, he's managed to achieve them all in this fight. Looking ahead, is, he, is this is does does he stay in power? I believe so. You uh, do. I think I do. Um, I think if you look at the power structure that exists around Vladimir Putin, is that his sole focus in the institutions around him are all about the power of Vladimir Putin. Uh, I think the more hyperbolic claims out there that people like Evgeny Prigozhin are going to supplant him or replace him are completely wrong. And we're drinking our own Kool-Aid and hoping that somehow, if Putin does go, things will miraculously get better. The what about his health? What about his health? We keep hearing Putin's not healthy. You've been hearing that for many, many years, and I wouldn't put any stock into it. Uh, I don't think anyone has any real insight into his health. And more importantly, the reality is if Putin goes, there's no guarantee that it becomes better. You could get somebody worse than Putin. You kind of expect it if you take a look at those nearest and dearest to him, which immediately closest to the vacuum, if indeed it opens up. All right. Uh, and uh, you, you, we were talking just before we went on the air here. Uh, there, you said they were using shooting or firing off 5,000 rounds a day? The Ukrainian, the Ukrainian artillery consumption rate is about 5,000 rounds a day, I believe. And what's our, how are they supplying that? And what's the world's and, and the U.S.'s ability to continue to supply 5,000 rounds a day? That's a very big problem. Uh, what you've seen recently is the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, uh, Milley, coming out and saying that hey, they want to work with the Ukrainians to change their tactics to reduce the consumption rates. Because the reality is the West stockpiles of munitions that are available to be sent forward are depleting. And we have a lagging indicator of United States production lines, but also especially European production lines, are not there yet and basically moving to a wartime footing. Are not uh, able to supply 5,000 rounds a day? No. No. The, we're talking about the Ukrainian. So we're going into our, we're going deep into our stockpiles. Yes. 
Can the, the U.S. The, run out of bullets? Um, I, I don't think we're going to run out of bullets anytime soon because there are obviously wartime reserves, you know, breaking break glass in case of emergency. But what has to happen from both Congress, the Department of Defense, the European partners, there needs to be those demand signals to the defense industrial base to start increasing production. You know, the 155 millimeter howitzer rounds, you know, those are relatively simple. The fuses are more complicated to make, and those are where the supply chain issues kick in. But these are not weapon systems that can be turned out immediately. Um, you know, when we said that we're going to be providing Patriot missile batteries for anti-air, those are nine months in the offing to be deployed. The Abrams are new builds. The Abrams tanks are going to be new builds that are going to be sent forward to Ukraine. Those are nine to 10 months in the offing. Uh, which is particularly why the Europeans or the Biden administration, excuse me, wanted the Europeans to give leopard tanks, which are already there and available. Um, so the defense industrial base has not been on a wartime footing. And that is a failure, I think, particularly of the administration here, but also the European allies to send those signals to the companies to say, we need you to start you know, putting on second, third shifts. We need you to start recruiting more people, doubling down on manufacturing and getting these weapon systems ready. Because we need to remember what happened was, is we started sending forward Soviet era equipment from our Eastern European allies or former Soviet states. Yes. We yes. promised that we would backfill the European allies with Western modern equipment. So we send forward our kit to them. So you're looking at a second and third order effect chain where we have to fill all of these orders to get back to where we were before. Right, right. All right. Uh, give me some percentages now, Josh. Uh, give me your percentage odds that this conflict in Ukraine is severely decelerated by the end of this year, by the end of 2024 or the end of 2025? Uh, Percentage-wise, that's a tough case. I, I do not anticipate this war will end by the end of this year. Uh, I think what you were likely to see is a slowing down of the conflict and the potential of a frozen front line. Um, the reality is the Ukrainians are not going to give up the fight. Zelensky came out today in a BBC interview and said that there can be no territorial concessions to Russia, which is a very aggressive statement. Uh, you have more aggressive uh, pundits saying that they should retake Crimea. So we look out 2023. I don't see this ending. 2024. Okay, so so, so uh, end of 2023, it's going to look like it looks like today. Barring any significant breakthrough by the Russians, the Ukrainians, and on the Ukrainian side, that means the West giving us some no, very no, no, it's a yes or no, Josh. I'm it's sorry? A, it's a yes or no, Josh. You're qualifying. You're, you, you've spent too much time on Capitol Hill. It's going to look the same at the end of the year, in your opinion, as your best guess? Largely, yes. Largely, yes. 2024, yes. will you say the same thing for the end of 2024? Too far out to predict. What could happen in 2024 that could change things materially? How does That's, this resolve? See, the thing is, I don't think you're going to see it resolve in a satisfactory way for the West's understanding. I mean, we, we're very bad at waging limited wars. And I think the reality is if Zelensky is in a position, and understandably so, that he says we cannot agree to any territorial concessions, Putin is unlikely to say that they can do anything short of whatever victory is and however they define victory. Now, they look like they're pushing towards taking the, the totality of the Donbass, which is what his goal looks like right now. Right. If he does that, does he say, I, I've achieved victory? He can say, I've achieved victory, but Zelensky could say, I don't agree to those terms. You know, well, this is what happens when you have unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. And right now, that's where that conflict looks like it's heading. You're not making me feel great about this, Josh. You're just, you're, you're just, you're just not. You're kind of bumming me out here. Um, I'm already sick of this. I want it over with, and it sounds like that ain't happening. Far, far, that ain't happening. Um, but I am concerned about our ability to continue to produce munitions 
sufficient to, I guess, continue to support the Ukrainians and to make sure that the U.S. has enough munitions as things heat up uh, in Taiwan. Um, and I don't know if you heard our earlier guest, Matthew Leffingwell, suggest that he thinks in the next three years we will end up in a military conflict with Taiwan. Do you agree with that? I think there is a possibility that we could end up in a military conflict over Taiwan. Uh, I think if anything, the expectation that it could be a possibility means that we need to double down on the defense of Taiwan and the support of our allies in the region to offset the possibility of that conflict. You agree with Leffingwell? It's a three-year window where it is likely? Um, I, I don't like going into sort of the, those windows. Is it possible? Of course in three not. Years? That's why I ask those questions. <laughs> is it possible in three years? Certainly. Um, is it possible in six years? Certainly. I mean, the, the founding of the PRC was, you know, I believe, it was in 1949. So the hundredth year, hundred year anniversary will be 2049. Would Xi Jinping like to have achieved it by then? That's a possibility too. President Biden has said that we will defend Taiwan militarily. Uh, that really pits us in a in a pretty face-to-face -face war with China, uh, just using Taiwanese turf. Does that make sense to anybody? I mean, wh why do we need to do that? Should we do that? Is it strategically that important or can we move Taiwan Semiconductor somewhere else? Oh, I, mean, I think we should move Taiwan, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor somewhere else just out of a matter of prudence. I mean, we, we've abandoned largely the policy of strategic ambiguity in terms of our defensive position towards Taiwan. And President Biden is saying that we are going to defend them militarily, as you said, puts us in a very interesting position, because what does that mean in practice? Does that mean we're going to create a Taiwan version of a porcupine that's going to be absolutely impossible for China to swallow? Does that mean we're going to intercede at a point when we need to double down and put carrier battle groups in the South China Sea to defend Taiwan? That's that's the fundamental question that remains to be seen. Okay, I, I'm not a conspiracist, conspiracy theorist type of guy, but is it possible? And we and I'm already over time, but you've been so good, I just have to hear. It. Is it possible that you know uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are very close? Could this be part of a larger strategy? Hey, you've always wanted Ukraine. Go for it. I will not maybe publicly, but quietly have your back. And once you deplete, you know, NATO and U.S. resources, then I'm going to go after Taiwan. And as soon as I do that, they're no longer going to be able to stand up to you in Ukraine. You get what you want. I get what I want. And we stay good friends. You, you can certainly see that, read the tea leaves and see that as a conspiracy. I think there's just more of a confluence of strategic interests. I think what has actually happened more and interestingly is that a reinvigorated NATO and a refocused European security architecture is actually worse for China in the long run, because that means the United States has a solid partner in Europe to focus on Russia and allows us to pivot to the Indo-Pacific, which is what we've wanted to do for a long time. So if that was the grand scheme behind the scenes between President Xi and President Putin, they've managed to get an own goal in the long term, I think. Josh Huminsky is the director of the Mike Rogers Center for Intelligence and Global Affairs at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, founded by former congressman and chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Mike Rogers, and of course, our great friend, David Abshire. Thank you so much, Josh, for being with us on the Farcast. Thank you very much for having me, and I hope you'll have me back again soon. We will indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for another week on the Farcast as we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. 
We thank you so much for listening, for sharing us on your social media, for your notes, for your cards, for your letters. We're truly grateful. So for my producer, Harry Jennings, and all of us at the Farcast, we thank you and we'll see you next week. I'm Michael Farr. That's a wrap for this week's edition of the Farcast. A big thank you to this week's guest, Kenny Polkari, Matt Leffingwell, and Joshua Huminski. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week, and you can reach us at hjennings at farmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. I'd like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed and provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not office employees or agents of Hightower Advisors or Farr Miller and Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farr Miller and Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware that past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, management or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmiller.com. We are here to help and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care. Stay safe and stay healthy. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Far Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained for the use of this information. Far Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Far Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.